leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Good evening. How is everybody? I guess I'm going to look this way tonight. This kind of struggling right here. Uh, uh, y'all ran some people off. I'm glad y'all are here tonight. Uh, we're Baptists. So if we don't feed y'all supper, uh, we know the crowds are going to be low. Um, so, But that's okay because those of y'all are here are here. And so I'm glad you're here tonight. Hope you're having a great Christmas. Uh, I made the loop tonight. We've got Christmas parties going on. Our preschoolers, uh, uh, the reason we didn't have supper tonight is if you walk over in the CLC, the entire thing is set up with jumpers. So we've got our preschool having their party over there tonight and having a big time. And then they're having a ugly Christmas sweater contest in the youth building. And they've got food o- over there and having a large time as well. Then all of our kids up there, they're having their Christmas parties. So it is going on. So I, I made a big loop before I came in here and I had um, one young lady that goes to our church. She saw me walking by. She said, brother Larry, can I tell you something? And I said, sure. She said, uh, there's something I really want for Christmas, but I don't think my parents are going to get it for me. Do you think you could talk to them? I said, I'll be happy to, uh, what is it? Cause I know, I know her parents. I said, what is it you want? She said, well, I only want one thing. And I don't care if they get me anything else. I just want this one thing. I said, well, what is it? She said, I just really, really want a cow. I just, I I want a cow. And I said, uh, I said, well, you know, I don't see any reason in the world as wonderful a young lady as you are that you don't get at least one cow for Christmas. Uh, They probably ought to buy you multiple cows uh, for Christmas, just knowing what a fine young woman you are but i hope um obviously we're getting right down to the to the nitty-gritty uh, christmas will be here in just a few days i hope that you have got all your preparations made and you are excited about that um it's going to be a good time uh, for all of us i'm excited um my favorite i like for christmas eve to fall on sunday that's my favorite i like the, if i had to pick a day I like Christmas to be on Monday and Christmas Eve to be on Sunday. That's my that's my favorite. I'm looking forward to this Sunday. Um, we're going to have two great uh, worship services this Sunday, and then we've got Christmas Eve service Sunday night. Um, y'all are going to be seeing a lot over the next couple of uh, few weeks. About next year, we're going to get a begin um, taking a break this Sunday. Um, we're going to preach a, a Christmas message this Sunday, actually a Christmas message from 1 John uh, that I'm excited about sharing with you guys. And then December 31st, which will be obviously the last Sunday of the year, we will finish up the book of Colossians. And then starting the first Sunday in January, we're going to begin a brand new series and we're going to walk through the life of Abraham. Um, It's going to be going to take us uh, several months to walk through the life of Abraham together, uh, a nomad's journey of faith. And we're going to look at look at his life. And so I'm excited about that. But also you're going to see a lot about our Bible reading plan. Great, great Bible reading plan. Um, you need to sign up for that. Just a great way to stay accountable. Um, it's going to be the equivalent of about reading three chapters a day. Uh, we're going to read through the Bible together, starting in Genesis and reading through the Bible together in a year. Um, it's great now um, because it's actually on our on our phones uh, or, or on a tablet. It's you can you can 
access it anywhere. And so um, if you get an extra few minutes here, extra few minutes there, you can plow through that. Um, deer season is a wonderful time, uh, I find, to be able to, to plow through that and, and, and read some of the Bible. One of the things that, uh, that I have started doing um, is that uh, in the mornings when my alarm goes off um, and I get up, the first thing I do is grab that phone and read some of the Bible. Like, I'm, that is not my Bible study. That is just try to get my mind started in the right way. So literally the first thing, I'll pick up my phone and read a couple of chapters just before I do anything else just to get, get the, my mind going right. So that's exciting. And then we're going to enter into a two-year project. We talk about it being important with the kids, but I believe it's, we're going to do this with children. We're doing it with students. We're doing it with an adults. Um, I came across a book that I shared with our staff several months ago, um, and it's called 100 Bible Verses That Everyone Should Know or That Every Christian Should Know. And it's a challenge that what we're going to issue is that one, one verse a week for the next 100 weeks, we're going to challenge you to memorize. They're not difficult. Some of you, so, and, and some of the times you get a break. Like the very first week, you probably already know that verse. It's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So each week, there's a separate Bible verse challenge. And so we think it's going to be really important over the next couple of years even to commit these verses to heart. Uh, and, and so you're going to see challenges about that. We're excited about that as well. On Wednesday nights, uh, we've got several weeks left. As we get back, we're going to uh, complete um, this Knowing God series. We may take, uh, may take a little break to do a shorter series. Uh, and then... Um, we will have some books available to you guys. Um, we're going to spend uh, some time together. Uh, another suggested book, if you're looking for something to read over the holidays, uh, is a book by R.C. Sproul. It's called The Holiness of God. And I'm going to be walking through that some on Wednesday nights as we get uh, as we finish up this. So that's, that's where we're going. Um, long range, pulpit strategy, short range, um, giving you Wednesday nights. When we get through with the life of Abraham, um, we're going to start a series after that. Abraham is obviously a life of faith. Uh, and there's a New Testament book of the Bible that really looks at what it looks like to put your faith into practice. And so we're going to go straight from Abraham's life to walking through the book of James together. And so we're going to do that uh, late spring after Easter. Uh, we'll begin that. So that's, that's where we are. Uh, excited about that. Looking forward to all of that that's taking place. But tonight, we're going to be talking about one of the preeminent attributes of God. And so if you have your Bibles tonight, uh, I want you to go to a verse. We talked about 100 Bible verses that everyone should know. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 would definitely, definitely make that list. Ephesians 2, uh, 8, and 9. Um, so we're going to look at that tonight, and then we're going to look at what is the grace of God and what is the importance of understanding the grace of God. And even though the grace of God is supposedly championed by so many, there are very few that truly understand the concept of God's grace and what that means as far as salvation is concerned. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For it is by grace you have been saved. There's a question that you see, number one, on your listening sheets tonight, and it asks this, what 
four crucial truths does the doctrine of grace presuppose? What four truths do the doctrine of grace presuppose? In other words, for me to understand what grace is, there are some things that I need to fundamentally understand to understand why I would ever need grace, why grace is important. And the first of those is the depravity of man. Now, when we say the depravity of man, we, we understand that inside a man's heart is only evil, that there is no good within us. Um, was talking with my daughter. Um, they've been doing a, a series where they're, they've been studying World War II, reading some books from that period and recounts from that period. And so we were talking about the diary of Anne Fromm, and she was talking about that, and we were discussing it. And at the end of that book, one of people's favorite lines is, is that she makes this statement. She said, even after all of this, I still believe that people are truly good at heart. Now, that's a wonderful sentiment, but the truth of the matter is that we understand that no one is really good at heart. The understanding of the gospel is that no one's born good, that it's not a psychology problem we have, that we aren't fit to be in the presence of God. One of the reasons that grace is misunderstood is because there are many people who think that people really are good, except for maybe just a select few, you know, the worst of the worst, or the worst of the bunch. But inherent in understanding the doctrine of grace is understanding the depravity of man. Number two, number two is understanding the justice of God, the justice of God, that God cannot turn a blind eye, that he can't just pretend like it's not happening. Um, sometimes I think we misunderstand the love of God and the grace of God because we suppose that God should be someone who out of his grace that would mean he could just ignore our sin. If you're a parent, um, or certainly if you're a teacher, at some point in your life, you've just been tired. I, I don't know if you ever have been tired, but sometimes you just get wore out. And because you're worn out, sometimes you see things that ought to be corrected, but you just think, I don't even want to deal with that right now. I don't want to fool with that right now. I'm just going to pretend like that didn't happen. And most people think, that God's grace looks like him turning a blind eye to things that are taking place. That's not the grace of God, and it can't be because God is a just God. So once we understand that, we understand that grace isn't overlooking sin. It has to be something different. Number three may sound a lot like the depravity of man, but it's different. It's the spiritual inability of man. The spiritual inability of man meaning that we cannot repair our relationship with God. We can't make it right on our own. There's no sacrifice that we can make. There's nothing we can do outside of God doing something for us to right our relationship with God. And then finally, the sovereign freedom of God. The sovereign freedom of God, that God is not obliged to love and to help us, that we can only claim the justice of God, so grace then inherently is a free gift, and because it is a gift and because it is free, it is unearned, it is unmerited, and it is undeserved. So those are the presuppositions of the doctrine of grace. And so then that causes us to ask the question, if by grace we have been saved, why do those, number two, why do those who truly understand the concept of grace find it so meaningful? 
And the simple answer to that is because they understand that their salvation is completely impossible without it. Um, there are people that have been in church their whole lives that have never been able to break loose from a legalistic background, trying to earn the favor of God, trying to do the right things, trying to have the right amount of works. And we begin to realize very quickly that when you truly understand grace, it is awe-inspiring because you understand that you couldn't earn it. So that's the concept of grace and how meaningful it is. So then how is grace related to the doctrine of justification? Number three. So we go from condemned criminal to the child of God with a full inheritance. You go from a convicted criminal to the child of God. So for justification to take place, that means that we had to be justified before God. Does that mean that God looks at us and declares us not guilty? Yes, but this is why. Because our guilt was taken and placed on Christ so that He pays the punishment of our sin so that we now are justified before God. But again, not by merit, not by works, not by things that we have done, but by grace and by grace alone. It's free to us, but it costs God dearly. So then, when we understand grace as it relates to justification, we need to understand grace as it relates to the plan of salvation. That's question four. Or specifically, how does grace fit into the plan of salvation? So let's just walk through some of the major steps in salvation. Um, this is, this is kind of going to be a uh, uh, the doctrine of salvation in just a few minutes. But let's walk through the biggest elements. What, what would be the first element in the salvation process? Just think about yourself. What is the first element that had to take place in the salvation process? Most people, now, and, and I'm not calling anybody out, but the problem with most people's doctrine of salvation is when they say what is the first thing that has to happen, they think first about something that they had to do. The first thing that happens in the salvation process is the doctrine of election. That God, in His sovereign design, chose us through His love, and so grace is in the electing process. Now, we're about to go, I know it's Christmas week, and and probably you've got a lot going on, but I want to point out to you, and I think this is important, a major misstep that people take theologically in understanding the electing work of God. Most, many people, even in Christian denominations, will try to move away from the doctrine of predestination or the doctrine of election by saying that all election is, is foreknowledge and that God looked down through the corridors of time, and He saw that you were going to choose Him. And because God saw that you were going to choose Him, He then elected you. Now, just think through that, because I'm going to go ahead and put, play my cards on the table. I don't think anything could be further from the truth. And here's why. Ephesians 2.8. It is by grace you have been saved if god had to look down through the corridors of time and see that i was going to choose him that would be him choosing me based on a work that i have done and that's not what the bible teaches 
So it is grace in our salvation, but it's grace in the electing process of God. And then we have grace, not only in election, but in redemption. Now, when we say to redeem something, the word redeem means to buy back, to purchase back. And we know that we were redeemed from a life of sin, a life that was meant for hell. And so we are redeemed. So we're grace and election, grace and redemption, grace we talked about in justification, grace in regeneration. When we baptize, obviously, I try to make it clear every time that there's no salvific value in going into the baptistry. But it does symbolize something that we were buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. So regeneration is John 3. What did he tell Nicodemus? You must be what? Born again. You must become a new person. You must die to who you were, be regenerated. That is the work of grace that happens in regeneration as well. Regeneration, justification, then in sanctification. If you are saved, the reason that you are becoming more Christ-like and growing in your faith is not because God saved you by grace and then called you to grow on your own. You are sanctified the same way you were justified. How are you justified? By grace. How are you sanctified? By grace. How will you be glorified? By grace. So grace is the common denominator that fits into every aspect of our salvation. It's the motivating force that the praise of His grace and His glory is the ultimate goal as He brings salvation to people. So if that's the case, then what does grace have to do not only with our election and our regeneration and our redemption, our justification, our sanctification, our just and our glorification, but what does it also have to do with our preservation? Now, this may just seem like a technical term, but in Baptist circles, we always hear this, that Baptists believe once saved, always saved. A lot of people that have objections to the Baptist church will have objections because of that doctrine. But what I have learned is most people have objections to that doctrine because they misunderstand that doctrine. Because if you are truly saved, you will always be truly saved. So I do agree with that statement. But where most people, and I have said this many, many times, because I think it needs to be explained, that's not saying that we believe if you ever signed a card or if you ever walked an aisle or if you ever have been baptized that you're always saved. That's saying that if you truly were regenerated by the grace of God, that the grace of God was not only enough to save you, but it's enough to keep you saved. So if I believe that God saved me by grace, it means that I would have to have enough faith that he could save me by grace, but I don't have enough faith to believe he can keep me saved. Because if I had to keep myself saved, I wouldn't stay saved 10 minutes. I'd have gotten lost all along the way. So the, the preservation of the saints is, is more about understanding, and I like the preservation. Some people use the word perseverance. Perseverance, though... I'm okay with that term. That connotes that it is the believer's job to persevere and to stay saved. Preservation has the connotation that God is the one who is preserving the salvation and that is keeping you saved by grace. So in response to that, um, Packer has a quote on page 136. You see this is, is number six, the, the last question on your listing sheet. And that quote says this, those who suppose that the doctrine of God's grace 
tends to encourage moral laxity, do not know what they are talking about. Now, let's just talk about that for just a moment. There are a lot of people, and Paul addressed this in Romans 6, and probably at some point in your life, you have prescribed to this at least some point when you fell into some form of sin. But there are people that often argue, because God is a God of grace, He is obliged to forgive. And because He's obliged to forgive, and He's going to forgive me no matter what I do, I don't have to really try my hardest in my moral life, that word moral laxity, that I can kind of live however I want to live because God is going to forgive me anyway. Now, Paul addressed that in Romans, and he talks about this doctrine that people thought, where grace abounds, should I sin all the more? Because there was a group of people in the Roman church who were basically arguing, if you really like the grace of God, you ought to sin more. Because if you sin more, that gives God opportunity to give you more grace. And if you get more grace, then obviously that's better than less grace. So sin more and get more grace. That's not a new issue. That's been going on for 2,000 years in the church. But people that understand grace and people that have received grace should then give themselves to good works. I I didn't read this because I wanted to save it for now. But Ephesians 2, 8, 9 there's, there's a, a, a tenth verse that we need to read as well. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So if truly we understand grace and we're appreciative of grace, then the gratitude for that grace now motivates us, and we really we begin to grasp the words of that hymn. One of my favorite hymns is the hymn, Come Thou Found. And there's a line from that hymn that I think is one of the most beautiful lines in all of hymnology. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. What does that mean? Sometimes I think that we discard hymns because we don't always understand the verbiage but we need to try to explain what, it, what they mean so people appreciate it. When I say to grace how great a debtor, in other words, I've been given so much grace in my life that there's no way, because it's grace, I could possibly, possibly pay it back. But every day I'm constrained by the grace that I've been given, and so that now motivates me, not to moral laxity, it, as Packer calls it, but to try to live my life in a humble appreciation and praise for what it is that God has done. So if if that's the case, that changes a lot of things about the way we grasp it. So instead of being uh, assuming God's grace, we appreciate God's grace in a way that now I want to please Him and I want to love Him. Uh, We've made the example of, of human relationships. And if we truly if someone truly loves us, then the response to that is not to take advantage of them because we know they love us, but to actually try to pay it back and to try to, to, try to do the best we can by them. You know, if you've, if you've got teenagers, it's just whether or not they're good teenagers or bad teenagers or anything else, they're teenagers. And one of the things that you realize with a teenager is, and this, is not a, this should be the way it is, they just assume you love them. But they, they know that you're going to be there. They know no matter if they mess up or 
no matter what they do, that mom and dad are there. So very seldom does a teenager, occasionally you get one in a million, but they don't walk up to you and say, I know how much you do for me, and I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you, and I know that, that you've had my best interest at heart. I want to thank you for the discipline that you give my life and how you provide for me and, and that, that you're really looking out for me. Now, you may have a teenager that does that, and if you do, you need to go home and hug them. That's rare. But it's because a teenager assumes all those things. And technically, a child should be able to assume some of those things about their parent. Well, some of the time in our assumptions about how God relates to us, we forget to be appreciative and recognize that it is grace is the reason that he does it and that that grace is a divine gift and that grace is all from him. So when we get to Christmas and we begin to think about the incarnation of Christ, the beauty of Christmas is, is one of the greatest highlights that you will ever see of the grace of God. That God left heaven, took the form of man, born in a manger, in a trough in Bethlehem, born to two teenage poor parents, and then to live the life he lived for you and me. It's a beautiful picture of the grace of God. And it is an amazing thought to think about if that's God's gift to us. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily, daily, I'm constrained to be. Let my heart, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. What does that mean? It means that I not only need God's grace to save me, but I need his grace to help, him, to help me love him, to bind me to him. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your grace, and I thank you that it is not of ourselves so that we would never be able to boast. I thank you tonight for the beauty and the miracle of the incarnation, and I thank you how it highlights the glory of your grace. And so as we celebrate your birth and we celebrate your life, we celebrate your grace, Lord, we say thank you and we ask for your help to live our lives in humble gratitude. And Lord, that we would come before you with the recognition that we truly are debtors, that it is a debt we could never pay back because it's a gift bigger than we could ever imagine. Thank you. Lord, we love you, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known.